Hi there, I'm Shen Ning. And I am Mehdi Jorfi, and we are the hosts of Sciencely Hashed. Welcome to our podcast. Today we have a fireside chat with Professor Paula Hammond, who holds many titles and recognitions, but we'll highlight that she's the Department Head of Chemical Engineering at MIT, a faculty member at the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research, and has been elected to join the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, as well as the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Indeed, she's a true pioneer in nanotechnology and chemical engineering, and we We are so thrilled today to have her on our special guest episode. Before we jump into the interview, we'd like to mention our Patreon account. If you like our show and you want to help us to continue making the content that you enjoy, please consider becoming one of our patrons at patreon.com slash join slash signed rehashed. You can support us with contributions of just $3 a month or at $5 a month, you can become a VIP patron. Our first 10 VIP patrons will receive a free Science Rehashed water bottle. Sign up at patreon.com slash join slash Science Rehashed. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash join slash Science Rehashed. As mentioned in a previous episode, we would like to really acknowledge our listeners. Uh, Daniel Gordon on Apple Podcasts left a note for us. Um, Daniel said, The team is clearly putting together thorough episodes and bringing science to a broad audience. I hope the listeners will expand and this will get a loyal following. Thank you, Daniel. We really hope so too. And we really appreciate you leaving us a note on science uh, on Apple podcast. So if you want us to also read one of your reviews, please go on Apple podcast and leave us a comment. Thanks, Jen. Also, we are trying something new in our Twitter. Come share your thoughts or questions on the latest Science Rehashed episodes. Rehash the episode with us at Science Rehashed using the hashtag SREpisode. See you there. And now let's dive into the episode. Professor Hammond, welcome to the podcast. It's a true honor to have you here today. Let's start at the beginning. You are from Midwest. Please tell us a little bit about your upbringing in Detroit, Michigan. Excellent. I had a wonderful upbringing in Detroit. Um, I was growing up in the 1960s there, and I had, uh, very unique to me, um, I had a father who was a biochemist, had a PhD, and my mother who uh, got her master's in nursing. And while I was growing up, I watched her launch a school of nursing at Wayne County Community College and become the dean of nursing there. So I had some parents who really set incredible examples. Um, and I had a big and a little brother at that time. Both of us, you know, we were all very close in age. So um, I really loved growing up in Detroit. It was uh, uh, a unique experience, a very African-American city. Uh, even at that time when I was growing up, uh, becoming ultimately by the time I graduated from high school, about 85% African-American. What was the family's relationship with science and technology in general? 
in general, we were engaged in every kind of uh, venture from science to um, writing. And in fact, uh, growing up, we had things like chemistry sets and build a heart kits that we got for Christmas. Um, but we also got lots of books. Um, we loved music. And as it turns out, I have a very diverse set of interests among my family. My two brothers, one of them is an urban planner and the other is a poet. So we really had exposure to just about everything. And growing up as a little girl, I was sure that I wanted to be a writer of children's literature. In fact, I loved fiction. I loved, uh, and, and over time I began to evolve from fiction into, uh, to include science fiction and fantasy writing. And by the time I was a junior in high school, I had already determined that I was going to be a children's fiction writer. And that was going to be my, my job growing up. Dr. Haman, what changed your mind? What made you go into institutes of technology? I think you said you did your undergrad at MIT, a master's at Georgia Tech, and then your PhD back at MIT. That's a great question <laughs> because um, actually it was my junior year chemistry class that changed my mind. And what was fascinating about that was that I had always been good at science and good at math. Um, but it, it had never really come alive for me um, until I had this chemistry class. I went to an all-girls high school. We were small classes and small groups. And this was my first uh, uh, female science teacher, too, Mrs. Her. And uh, in that class, we had a lab. And I was able to combine chemicals. And you could create heat and light and color changes uh, with chemistry. And just the idea that you could take two different elements that you know and combine them to create something entirely new was incredibly exciting to me. So I got really into that chemistry lab. I was hanging around after class. And Mrs. Herr finally said, you know, you're really good at science. You're really good at math. And you're really into this. Uh, why don't you think about engineering? You should think about chemical engineering since you love chemistry so much. And I wasn't even familiar with the field of chemical engineering. So I went back home, I, I asked questions, and I began to learn more about it. And I decided that's what I wanted to study. And uh, over time, I started applying to schools. And I had always heard about MIT and, and these textbooks that we had, little clips and pictures taken from MIT. So when I applied to colleges, I made sure to apply there because it seemed that that was one of the places uh, where you go to learn the top science and engineering. Uh, I, I would like to uh, see your your thoughts, uh, Paula. You you've been in the '90s in chemical engineering field, and I I, I I'm not sure how many uh, how many women were choosing the chemical engineering field at that time. And over all these years as a faculty, and right now the head of the department of chemical engineering in the at MIT. Uh, can you a little bit comment about the racial and gender discriminations and inequalities in, 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 the, in the STEM field? Absolutely. I think that um, I've had a, a good experience overall, but definitely um, when you're starting out. And I, I, when I started with my freshman year in chemical engineering, uh, there were, you know, very small numbers of uh, women and African-American women in the field. And I think I noticed this even more as I went out to work, because I worked for a couple of years before I went back to grad school. 
And there I was very, um, I would say very isolated. I was the only black female engineer and I was working uh, in my first job in a division which had two women engineers who both left within the first year that I was there, uh, leaving me the only woman engineer in the entire division. Um, definitely uh, something that was remarked on, actually, uh, by you know a number of my work colleagues at the time uh, who liked to claim that women couldn't survive in their division. And you know to think that there's a time when that was something you would brag about and you know feel proud of is 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 really um you know it is really sad um fortunately uh, i was able to first of all move forward in in that company and then move on to grad school when that's when i went to georgia tech because i had discovered that for me to really do the kinds of exciting research i wanted to do i did need to go back to grad school and um, in that experience, I found that there were mentors who really looked out for me. And that made all the difference in the world. So even when you are uh, on a campus where you're not necessarily immediately recognized as a student when you're walking down uh, or into the uh, classroom, or you are one of only a few who look like you, um, it's really encouraging to have faculty members who reach out who ask you how you're doing, who take an interest in your career, and who are constantly pushing you forward. And I've had that experience throughout. Some of my faculty members who got me excited about polymer science when I was at MIT um, were still at MIT, and I communicated with them. And I also had some good mentors at Georgia Tech who uh, encouraged me to uh, look further into the polymer field. When I heard that MIT had a new polymer program that was starting up, I decided to go back to MIT. I contacted one of those professors who said, oh, you have to come, you know, send in your application. He was very encouraging. And uh, when I arrived back at MIT, I found that um, through engaging with others, um, I really had some real strong mentors and I, I did foster that those relationships and uh, make sure that uh, that I was getting as much as I could from their knowledge and their background. And that was very helpful. So this is a question we like to ask all of our guests. Who did you look up to while growing up? Yes, growing up, I definitely looked up to my parents, as I was describing. I thought my mother was really, uh, she was an amazing sort of unique in that time, uh, woman at the forefront um, this is when women were really getting out into the workplace, and she was basically putting on her um, power suit every morning and going out to uh, an academic institution where she was the only female and only black dean. Um, and my father, who was the director of health laboratories for the city of Detroit and was also president of the NAACP chapter, um, so he was heavily involved in um, really uh, ensuring that the civil rights that we had just gained, this is the 70s, if you remember, uh, were, were ones that would extend uh, in our city. So I, I, was, I had some great role models growing up. And what about as you left your family at home? But as I entered college, uh, the group of people that I listened to really expanded beyond uh, my teachers and parents. Uh, there were amazing fellow students that inspired me. And also 
faculty members who got me really interested in polymer science and being able to make materials atom by atom and really design exactly what they can do. And that got me into uh, the kind of work that I'm doing now. And speaking of the current work, you are mostly focused on using electrostatics uh, to build these thin layers of polymers on top of each other with opposite charge. So for our broad audience, for instance, if, you, if the first layer is negatively charged, the second layer would be positively charged, followed by the third negatively charged layer and so on. And you did an amazing and fascinating research to use these thin polymeric layers for different applications, including the ovarian cancer and other diseases. Could you please walk us through this? Absolutely. Uh, and Mehdi, you described it extremely well. Uh, and as uh, someone who I know knows a great deal about this approach as well, um, we actually start with any kind of surface or substrate that has an initial charge and we can then absorb or wrap these layers around that substrate. And this means that we can incorporate within those layers any number of drugs that can be fit into the layers based on their charge or if they associate with the polymer that we're incorporating. And we can also incorporate polymers that have charge and have a given rate of degradation so we've used this for a number of applications. We've coded orthopedic implants, for example, and released proteins that help regenerate bone, get your cells to actually generate bone. Uh, but more recently, we've been looking at how we can wrap these layers around incredibly small particles. In this case, we're working with nanoparticles, and a number of people in the audience may have heard of nanoscience or may be familiar with it, but here we're looking at incredibly small particles that are able to be taken up by cells. They're able to essentially travel through the bloodstream uh, without getting disrupted. So we take these tiny particles. We can incorporate inside that particle something like a chemotherapy drug. In our case, for example, we'll use a really common drug like cisplatin, which is known to be really effective against lung cancer, breast cancer, and is effective in ovarian cancer. However, in something like 70% of ovarian cancer cases that for patients who are treated with cisplatin, months later, tumor cells show up again, and these tumor cells are ones that are resistant to the drug. And the reason for this is that these uh, tumor cells undergo genetic mutations and modifications, and some of those mutations enable them to survive the chemotherapy drug, and these are the ones that remain behind in the first onslaught and then begin to grow back again. So in our case, we've been using this as a way to, this particle as a way to incorporate a combination drug. We put cisplatin in the core and then we wrap layers. And within those layers are negatively charged nucleic acids, siRNA or silencing RNA. And that siRNA effectively silences or turns off the genes that allow these tumor cells to, to survive in the presence of the chemo drug. Because this is a layered nanoparticle, you can imagine that the drug in the outside layers comes out first, and then the drug in the core. So in our case, the siRNA, which is in the layers, comes out first, and it silences those genes within the cell, 
and essentially makes those cells much more susceptible to the chemotherapy drug, which then comes out next. So this is the basic platform that we've been using uh, for ovarian cancer and the reason why we're excited about it. But we have been doing some slightly new things with this wrapping of layers more recently. For example, we can use just one or two layers in which the final layer allows the nanoparticle to not only go through the bloodstream and stay there for a long time because it doesn't interact with immune cells, but we can also make sure that that outer layer has a specific kind of attraction or affinity for the ovarian cancer cells. And more recently, we found that some of these nanoparticle outer layers that we've designed are extremely sticky to the outsides of ovarian cancer cells, but don't really get taken up inside of them. So we've used them essentially as ways to deliver drugs that need to go to the outsides of cells, essentially being released when they are stuck onto the ovarian cancer cells to the neighbor cells. This means that we can release proteins and some of these proteins or molecules are cytokines. And cytokines are essentially stimulants, very strong stimulants to the immune system. Ovarian cancer is known to be fairly um, non-responsive to immunotherapies, even though immunotherapies, which usually train our bodies to fight tumors with our own immune systems, have been incredibly exciting in the field of oncology. Um, it turns out that ovarian cancer is not very responsive to the uh, immunotherapy drugs that we have right now. So what we're using the nanoparticle for in this case is to carry the cytokine to these ovarian cancer cells. They coat the outsides of the cancer cells and then over extended periods of time, they release these cytokines. And these cytokines initiate a really large inflammatory response in the tumor. And it's important that it remains in the tumor because when it's in the tumor, then that causes the remaining immune cells that are present to undergo a series of signaling and to bring in the fighter immune cells uh, that will essentially recognize the tumor and destroy it. If it gets released in the bloodstream, however, we will cause the immune system to fight our own bodies. So we really need to be careful about how we deliver the drug. And that's why we're excited about using these you know, particularly sticky ovarian cancer nanoparticles for delivering cytokines. Can you, for example, uh, target uh, cancers in the brain or other, you know, hard to treat tumors and cancers? Uh Absolutely. In fact, uh, you mentioned cancers in the brain, and we have a new project uh, with collaborators at University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, this is funded by Cancer Research UK. In this work, we've been looking at outer layers that are able to get us across the blood-brain barrier. Um, this is actually the very tight junctions that form in the blood vessels in our brain that protect our brain from uh, a range of different um, uh, impurities and, uh, and uh, things we don't want to get in. However, when we want our nanoparticle to cross that blood barrier, um, we need to introduce something to that surface that will cause cells to let it in and to get it across. 
And so we've been functionalizing our nanoparticles with these kinds of, uh, of uh, groups that allow that. And we've also been designing the nanoparticle so that it gets recognized only by the tumor cells and taken up only by the tumor cells. And that's really important for treating glioblastoma. And it's particularly important when you're talking about, for example, a pediatric patient, because there are these growing and developing neurons that really uh, we want to avoid poisoning with our therapy. So if we can get very targeted, then we can be much more effective and we can avoid side effects that can be really terrible. Um, and this is one of the things that we've been doing more recently is, is looking at glioblastoma. But if we're able to get across the blood-brain barrier with a chemo drug, then we may, with more work, be able to train nanoparticles that can essentially get across the blood-brain barrier and deliver to other parts of the brain with efficiency. And this is something long-term that we would really like to begin to look at. This is fascinating to hear about. Using nanoparticles for drug delivery could change cancer treatment dramatically. How far away is your work right now from the bedsides? That's a great question. Um, some of the systems that we've developed that are simpler, that simply are looking, now we're looking at combinations of drugs, are a little bit closer. We're working on a collaboration with colleagues at Harvard, uh, where we hope that if we can see synergy, we may be able to talk more directly to the drug companies that make those drugs and uh, think about how we might be able to move this to a more translational place, which uh, for us would mean first larger and more complex studies and then some sort of very early clinical trial. Um, from my perspective, depending on the success of this early work, that's something that is possible in two to three years, uh, maybe four or five. Uh, then for the siRNA containing nanoparticles, um, we've gotten more work done on those systems, but they are more complex. So I think that um, we've been able to figure out more effective ways of synthesizing and manufacturing them. Um, but to move up to large-scale clinical trials, we want to extend that scaling to a, um, a uh, sort of more effective manufacturing process. And we have our eyes on that now. We've been developing that. Uh, in the meantime, we also need partners who are working in the siRNA space uh, so that we can essentially uh, begin to think about funding uh, a meaningful clinical trial uh, with results as we see them come out. So for that, it may be um, a little bit longer, but hopefully not too much longer. So you just mentioned one potential obstacle that is being, um, that is, I think, a major a challenge in the field of nano nanomedicine, which is um, the ability to kind of scale up in the production of uh, consistent nanoparticles that has the right amount of drugs. And so can you talk a little bit more about maybe this challenge and other challenges in the field of nanomedicine right now? Yes, I think that is a real challenge and something that we've begun to address. So I should call it um, actually a step that we are making now Nanoparticle manufacture is really broad because nanoparticles consist of many different kinds of materials. Um, but the ones that are most commonly thought of for these kinds of applications are either liposomes or poly degradable polymeric nanoparticles. And as it turns out, there's been a great deal of work with liposomes. And our first nanomedicines that are FDA approved consist of lipids or liposomal systems. 
including the first siRNA uh, drug, which came out a couple of years ago, and um, the moderna vaccine, uh, which consists of lipidic nanoparticles, lipos- liposome-like nanoparticles. Um, because of that, um, we have a good deal, a good wealth of information about how to manufacture and generate liposomes that are within a reasonable range of um, polydispersity or range of size and are the right size. Uh, right now, the real effort is going to be around looking at the post-manufacturing steps or the steps that happen after you form the liposome uh, for us to incorporate these two layers that we typically are working with. And uh, we've been using a range of different uh, known filtration methods for rapid purification. Um, one's called tangential flow filtration, which is a common pharmaceutical approach for purification, which we found actually applies to our system. Um, and then we have uh, a range of continuous baths and rinses that we can introduce. So I think as we begin to um, consolidate the manufacturing of our system, um, we will be able to move forward, uh, provided that we remain focused on using materials that are already generally regarded as safe. I think that um, for polymeric or degradable nanoparticles, there's also a lot of background information. And these are systems which are really effective at encapsulating um, small molecules and molecules that aren't very water soluble. So that I, I see a similar kind of path. We may have, I think we have more data on liposomes, but PLGA is the next uh, area. And it certainly is quite manufacturable. There are a number of my colleagues, uh, including a number of chemical engineers who have looked at different ways in which you can generate these nanoparticles um, in, in large quantities. So I think the manufacturing picture is halfway there, if not more. Um, but I do think that for it to be broadly accessible to a range of different researchers, uh, we need to have um, more shared facilities where we can actually try to generate these systems and uh, more uh, shared opportunities to talk about some of the manufacturing aspects. And of course, this is something that's a little bit tricky because uh, drug companies can't share very much. But certainly on the developmental level, on, in the lab scale level, there can be a lot of exchange that can help accelerate a number of these platform technologies more effectively. Finally, I do think that um, additional funding and uh, really uh, a look at industry, government, academic partnerships in which we're able to share and combine data and knowledge um, are going to be helpful and may also allow us to pair teams because a lot, a large part of the slowdown in translation is the principal investigator who has something wonderful but doesn't have a partner who um, has the sort of deep pockets needed to try and move something forward. So trying to bring people together more effectively and more efficiently and, and allowing some early stage vetting of those technologies in a way that gives uh, the technology is a chance to be examined um, at a near clinical level. 
just to clarify one thing for the audience, the PLGA that Paula mentioned is a polylactic glycolic acid, is an FDA-approved biodegradable polymer and is one of actually best characterized biodegradable uh, polymer that decompose to non-toxic products in the in the body that's what we call it biodegradable and what do you think is the best approach to reaching a stage where there are more multidisciplinary research and institutes as well as bridging the gap between pharma nano and biotech as well as academia um i think there may be a need for more um shared I should say more research sharing, and that can be tricky or difficult. Uh, but on some level, if we can, at least on the manufacturing side of things, begin to get um, collaboratives together to talk about and address some of the uh, some of the process engineering challenges of manufacturing, um, and if we can also gather people together to talk uh, more openly about systems that that aren't effective, so that we can really streamline the work. One of the things that isn't really, or at least maybe it's better understood now, but in the beginning of nanomedicine wasn't as well understood by those who might be users of nanomedicine is that every nanoparticle formulation is its own, is unique. And so uh, the success or failure of one formulation does not necessarily imply anything about that of a, of a different one. Uh, and I think in the beginning, uh, if we saw that one system failed or worked, there was a presumption that everything would do exactly the same. And, and that's absolutely not true. What's needed is an ability to be able to tie together the formulations that have given characteristics. And as it turns out, there will be formulations that will be more effective for intravenous or systemic delivery, but others that will be much more interesting for uh, for example, delivery to the eye or uh, de delivery directly to the airway. And uh, I think if we begin to um, more openly characterize these systems and have, and, and there are some attempts at this, larger databases of information um, that are high quality and that they provide the same kinds of information consistently, um, that will be very helpful. publications and research in bone regeneration and mostly primarily on osteoarthritis. Can you tell us a little bit about these conditions and how your layer-by-layer -layer approach can tackle this problem? Now, that's a great question. Yes, we um, have a program that has been working on creating ultra-thin layers that coat scaffolds or implant surfaces, and uh, they release very gradually growth factors, which um, normally, if released very rapidly and at high concentrations, aren't as effective in regenerating bone because they get rapidly cleared away in the body and don't reside in the space where we want the bone for long enough. So that those developments allowed us to uh, essentially gain significant amounts of bone regeneration with much, much less of the growth factor incorporated on the scaffold, which means that you essentially greatly lower the cost of the treatment, you have a more effective treatment, and ultimately, because growth factors in very high concentrations 
have negative effects, uh, including stimulating perhaps nascent tumor cells and this, this kind of thing, that we avoid those side effects. Now, more recently, we moved from generating hard bone to asking the question how we might be able to address regeneration of cartilage. And this came from a Department of Defense grant in which we were uh, very interested in exploring ways of, of addressing post-traumatic osteoarthritis, which is that kind of arthritis that uh, a person gets if they have a sort of immediate trauma to their joint or over a long term through constant use or motion, uh, a worn uh, part of the cartilage. That damage to the cartilage leads to the inflammation at that site, and inflammation ultimately leads to more inflammation. It becomes an endless cycle as the body begins to uh, try to address that lesion that was created. Um, and this is why we see sometimes in athletes, in soldiers, in factory workers, uh, you see that this arthritis begins to take hold, even at very young ages. So we actually thought about charge again. But instead of using a layer-by-layer -layer approach, we decided that uh, for cartilage, we would go into a different direction. And the reason for this is that cartilage itself has no blood vessels. It's just a very dense, negatively charged uh, matrix of uh, meshy biopolymer. And uh, that biopolymer is the very essence of the cartilage. But unfortunately, um, it's very difficult without blood vessels to get something shooting down into the cartilage so that you can try to get some regeneration going. Now, there are proteins that are growth factors for regenerating cartilage, and uh, they can get into the cartilage, but they don't stay for very long. They get cleared out again. So we do want a carrier to help them stick around, but we need a carrier that's going to get into this dense mesh. And it turns out that this dense mesh is not only negatively charged, but it's very tight. So we need something that's going to be smaller than our 100 nanometer nanoparticle. We need something that's more like five to 10 nanometers in size. So we began to look at a polymer. It's really a big molecule that is uh, strongly positively charged and it's known as a dendromer. And the name comes from the root for the name tree. It really, if you think of it as um, kind of like a star or an asterisk, that then branches at the edges of the asterisk again, and then again, and then again. You can imagine that you have all of these branches at the edges. And in our case, the dendromer has all of these positive charges. They are amine groups at the edges. So we're working with a polyamidoamine dendromer. And this is a, a macromolecule that was created uh, many years back and have been studied and even looked at for biomedical applications. The trick here is that we want this polyamidoamine dendromer, this strong positively charged guy to go into the cartilage deep in and stay for a long time. The positive charge helps it stay for a long time, but it can't go deep in because it just sticks to the top surface if we don't do anything to it. Not only that, but all of that positive charge can be toxic to cells, so it can cause cells to die. So what we did was essentially attach a water-soluble polymer chain, polyethylene glycol, which um, you may have heard of from other drug formulations. It's a very nice, flexible, water-loving chain, and we attach it to the ends of some of these amine groups, 
and that lowers the charge, but it also provides these floppy, water-loving chains that are moving around the surface of the polyamidylamine dendromer and covering and uncovering the charge. Now, if we expose that to our surface of cartilage, we find that we get sticking, but it's not so stuck that it can't get deeper into the cartilage mesh. So it goes deep in and it sticks for a long time. So we end up getting um, a much longer residence time of this polyamidylamine dendromer than we would of a regular drug. So what we've been doing is attaching the growth factor to our dendromer and then delivering that through a simple uh, joint injection. It gets to the cartilage and then it just kind of buries inside and sticks around. And it turns out that we can keep um, a concentration that is therapeutic for about 30 days in the joint using this kind of injection. And uh, that is enough time to get regeneration of the cartilage. Because clearly your work has wide-reaching implications and hopefully will actually be implemented in the hospital within the next few years. Your career is absolutely inspirational. And I think we would like to ask a couple questions, pick your brain a little bit. The top levels of major institutions is obviously more diverse now than it was when you first entered into the field of chemical engineering. The landscape is changing and there's a lot of students like me who look up to you as one of their scientific heroes. What kind of advice would you give to students who are aspiring to be scientists and perhaps even a professor like yourself? I would definitely say believe in yourself, recognize that uh, there's always going to be perhaps a little voice that tells you, uh, maybe you shouldn't be here. Don't listen to that voice. Um, believe in yourself. Recognize that everyone is feeling a little bit like the imposter. And because of that, we're all here. We Don't be afraid to, um, to dig in, to focus on what you can do and move forward. Do not let, uh, do not believe that you are, are someone who does not belong. I think that was one of the key things I learned when I was a freshman at MIT. I was sure that admissions had made a mistake uh, and that I was there uh, out of some random error. Uh, but I decided I'm here. I'm here now and I'm going to take advantage of this. I'm going to really dig in. And I worked hard, but I didn't allow myself to believe that I needed to fail. I thought this is, I am here to succeed. I'm going to work on it and I'm going to continue to work on it until I can get a grasp. So definitely um, one of my most important messages is that you do belong. We need your voice. We need to hear your voice and your input. We want to know your perspectives on science your voice is going to make a difference in this world. And that's why you're here. So I would definitely emphasize that. And the second thing would be to reach out to your friends and your neighbors. No one does this by themselves. Contact friends, work together on problems, get support, ask questions. Uh, never be afraid to ask a question. There's no such thing as, as, as a dumb question, as you know. 
Um, and if you need help, ask for help. We love to end hearing about your hobbies. You have already touched on your interest first in fiction and later in science fiction writing. Tell us a bit more about why that was such an interest for you and whether it still holds interest. Yes, I was very interested in books. I was a bookworm growing up. I would read books instead of going outside a lot of the time. And um, I started by, like, I mean, I like all fiction to a large extent. I was reading books like Judy Bloom and Beverly Cleary books, Louisa May Alcott. Um, I loved uh, the autobiography, uh, autobiographies by Maya Angelou. But then I began getting into some science fiction. You know, you start with like C.S. Lewis, and then you're reading Madeline Lingle, Octavia Butler, Ray Bradbury. And I liked their science fiction because they often talked about uh, alternate realities and worlds in which, um, you know, we can uniquely bring diverse perspectives together. And 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 I loved some of those, you know, the way those stories came out. And now if I were writing now, I, I'm, I'm not sure what I would write about. I think I've experienced so many things and I'm sure I can use some of those experiences uh, for a few good science fiction novels. Uh, but um, I definitely still love literature. I love, I love storytelling. I love hearing both autobiographical stories and um, and really compelling uh, uh, good stories in general. That's great. And then you're also um, a big jazz fan. Is that correct? That's right. I, I love many kinds of music, but jazz is my favorite. Um, I, I especially like kind of the uh, the beboppy jazz of the 50s and 60s, although I like all of it going through the 70s to now. Um, I, uh, you know, I love Herbie Hancock and, uh, uh, Esperanza Spalding and, uh, you know, just a range of different artists. I love, uh, jazz vocalists. And, um, I think it's, there's something about the freedom and the spirit of the music and, uh, the way it can tell a story as well that, that compels me. And, I tend to be an optimistic or upbeat kind of person. So, you know, the rhythm and the beat tends to move me forward. So I love that about about music. I want to know what inspires you? How do you, where do you get your inspiration for either um, your daily, you know, life or for work? Oh, wow. Now, there are so many sources of inspiration for me. Um, I should say I'm a spiritual person, uh, and so my faith is gives me inspiration. Um, and along with that, uh, there are other people who are, I think, amazing who inspire me at at different times. So I think about uh, the members of my family who are doing amazing things. Um, I think about people. You know, we just saw Amanda Gorman uh, delivering a poem for the inauguration. That was incredibly inspiring. Um, I, I think about uh, I think about essentially what I would like to do to have a positive impact in this world, and that inspires me um, because knowing that even in the small things, being able to teach a new concept to a student or 
get a student involved or excited about an aspect of science, that that will have a long-term impact, that makes me really inspired. And um, sometimes I hear from my students and uh, that can really leave me um, really uh, both gratified and, and inspired. Well, with that, Paula, you are a truly inspirational person and we thank you so much for joining us today. It was an honor and privilege to have you in Science Rehash and uh, thank you so much again. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Professor Hammond, for taking the time and being a wonderful guest today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you to our listeners and a special shout out to our first Patreon. We are so thankful for your support. And if you would like to join our Patreon, a reminder to please go to patreon.com slash join slash science rehashed. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash join slash science rehashed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Kira Brenner, edited by Tavi Pollard, and mixed by Jared Warsoff. The cover art for this episode was created by our creative director, Emma Brand. We would also like to thank our marketing director, Carla Diavanzo, our production directors, Madura Lolicar and Sophia Nastri, our producer, Chiara Maffei, and our website developer, Rebecca Solson. Finally, we'd also like to thank Dr. Rudy Tanzi for providing us with the music for our intro. Our show is available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Please subscribe and refer our podcast to your friends. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can visit our website at sciencerehash.com. We would love to hear your comments and feedback for our show, so don't hesitate to reach out to us. Mm-hmm.